Hey there, welcome back to the Path to Zion podcast, where we are rediscovering the ancient way. Thank you for tuning back in for part two of Festivals of Men or Feasts of the Lord. And what we're doing, what we're attempting to do is talk about what? Another biblical challenge to Christmas. And like I told you in part one, this is going to be divided up into two primary components, and uh, it's going to take us some time to get through them. So I hope you're feeling patient and uh, following along. And uh, I want to get right to it. I told you at the end of part one that I intended to read some, a, a short fictional piece that I wrote uh, late last night and finished up this morning. And my, my heart's endeavor <laughs> behind it was I was just praying, which I'm, I'm thankfully right now doing more than I have been previously for the last several weeks and months, Asking, Father, what is your heart? I want your heart. I want your heart. I want your perspective. I want to know how you feel. I want to know what you want. <laughs> and I know I want to know and need to know what you want me to say to your children. What would you say to them? I will propose that this, in measure, in part, could be some of what he feels, some of what he is experiencing as he looks down on his children doing what? Festivals of men, doing traditions that were not sourced in him, didn't originate with him, okay? And so I just, again, this is just a short story. This is not going to make it on uh, you know any bestseller list anytime soon, number one, because it's not going to be for sale. Um, but it's called Father's Appointed Times. And again, this is fiction just reached into my mind and typed some things out. So I'm just going to read it for you. I, I, hope, I hope you pay attention that, and that this speaks to all of us to give us some imagery of perhaps what Father is feeling as we talk about this topic of Christmas and, and his, his feasts and how they stack up together. As Edward was stacking firewood on his front, front porch, his mind went to yet another winter that would soon be blowing into his neck of the woods. But more importantly, it was only 10 days away from celebrating his family's fall gathering. Edward could not have been more excited. There were several special gatherings that he arranged every year for his family, but the fall event was always his favorite. Despite the fact that his small cabin would likely be covered in snow within the next month or so, Edward had more immediate happenings at the front of his mind. Soon, his family would be arriving. Every year around this time, his children would leave their homes to travel to visit their father. He had many children, and all of them were scattered all about the country, living differing ways and in the midst of different seasons of life. But one thing was sure. They would drop everything and come to visit their father for his appointed times. Their tradition of setting up tents during the fall gathering had been a long-standing one, and there was always something grand about being out in nature together. No matter what the weather, no matter what the goings-on of life, his children would excitedly come for this set-apart time as a family. Of course, each child, now grown, had a family of their own, and all of the responsibilities that it demands. Full calendars, businesses to be managed, duties to fulfill. But no matter what, Edward's Edward's children were always willing to drop everything and travel to their father's cabin property and willingly unplug from the cares of life. Why would they do such a thing, we may wonder? 
Well, the answer is simple. It was all about honoring their father. He took such joy in their efforts to come and to be with him. They found their delight in seeing the smile on his face every time that they would gather together. The children, even as grown adults, always looked forward to what father would teach them and disclose to them each year. He had told them all since birth that he had appointed times for them to meet with him and for them to listen to all that he had to say during those times. Father would have everything planned and would always inform the children of what was expected of them when they came, their role in it all. These visits were always the fondest times for this family. Edward always promised to reveal something so wonderful each time that they would gather, and he always delivered on that promise. As Edward was finishing stacking the last piece of firewood, the postman drove up to his mailbox and stopped. As Edward turned to see his daily acquaintance and wave, he saw the postman slide a letter into the box before waving back and driving away. Even at his age, Edward loved receiving mail from his friends and family, so he walked immediately over to see what had come today. As he opened the mailbox door, he saw a lone envelope within. He reached in to grab it and noticed right away that the return address was that of his eldest son, now living about seven hours away. Edward leisurely walked back across his front yard, rustling through the oak leaves that were scattered about the gravel walkway. He stepped up onto his porch, made his way over to his rocking chair, and sat down. I sure hope Timothy is writing in regards to his visit, he thought to himself as he placed his glasses on the end of his nose and proceeded to open the envelope. He began to read, Dear Father, I hope you're doing well. I meant to mail you earlier, so I apologize for the short notice. I needed to let you know that we won't be able to make it to this year's family gathering. I know that we've never missed, but things have changed around here. We've become so busy. You know how life can get. The boys are growing up and sadly losing interest in coming, not to mention the price of gas these days. We had to come up with something new. So in a nutshell, some friends of ours here have started a new celebration of sorts and we've decided that it would be best for this to become our new family tradition too. They don't really believe like us, but they have told us so many great things about it. Apparently, people have been doing this for years and we didn't know. I know, I know, you've warned us for so many years about these types of things, but this seems different. And I think the children will love it. Of course we know that you can't come all the way out here, so we wanted you to know that our family wanted to give you our celebration, wanted to give our new celebration a purpose. You! We intend to dedicate our new celebration to you, Dad. I know that this might be hard for you at first, but there's just simply not time anymore to continue what we've always done at your place. I'm truly sorry, but I'm sure you'll understand I'll write again soon. We love you, Timothy. As the next several days came and went, more letters from most all of Edward's children arrived, explaining their own versions of the same changes within their households. Father's appointed times with his children were being forsaken, abandoned. All had justified reasons, of course. It's just not who they are anymore. It's simply too hard to plan. It's too hard to travel. Life has just changed in the world these days. 
The reasons went on and on and on. As Edward's day of his annual appointed time arrived, he went outside and he waited for his family, like he had done so many times before. Only this time, no one came to see him. No one came to receive his counsel. The hearts of his children had been carried away by the cares of life. They had become convinced that father's ways were just too old, really, not really for them anymore. The new traditions, ways, and practices of men had overcome father's old ways and led his children astray. His set-apart times to meet with them had been abandoned, traded in for worldly traditions that were more convenient and just really honestly catered more to them than him. But father was faithful. Every season, every appointed time, he would set his table, watch, and wait. He is always waiting, even still today, for his children to come home. Father's appointed times. And friends, if that makes any imagery at all come alive to you, that's my point within this, is that there has been an ancient way reality extended to us by Yahweh Elohim. And we've told him, no, thank you. By errant doctrine, by poor explanation of the Word of God, and horrible translating, we have, been be- we have been duped to believe that's just not for us anymore. That's not who I am. That was for the Jews, which is why I titled this Festivals of Men or Feasts of the Lord. They're his appointed feasts. They are not a people's. They are his. I want to read some Christmas history for the next few moments. That will probably take up most of this part two here. Please stay along. There's going to be some things in here that is very possible you do not know and have not heard before. Most of this stuff I... I, rehashed from from previous studies that I've done, and some of this I added um, this last week or two um, to this this series. Now, now we have to go all the way back to winter solstice festivals. They're older than our calendars, and they easily precede Christianity. I mean, we're talking old. Now, now is the winter solstice bad? Of course not. It's just a it's not even about being a day on a calendar. It's just a day in the, in the cycle of creation. It's, it's the shortest day moving into the longest. I mean, it's just simple. It's merely a day. It's not bad in and of itself, but that day, because of what it is, has been marked by humanity throughout every civilization that has probably ever lived in some way or another. Because... Long winter nights, long winter days. Just dragging through the cold and the darkness, and then all of a sudden what? Light becomes to come back again. We can look through Yule in Scandinavia. Um, We can look into history where, where the god Odin was believed to fly around at night to watch people and to decide who needed blessing or punishment. Santa-esque. In Rome, there was Saturnalia. Now, Saturnalia spit out tons of Christmas imageries and ideas. 
Most historians agree that ancient Romans taught that Mithra, the god of the sun, was born on December 25th. You can do a search on Tammuz. Same story. Same history. Their birthdays were considered the greatest day of the year, December 25th. And again, this predates Christianity. This is not <coughs> excuse me, something new. This is, this is ancient old. And let's be clear from the very outset that the association of celebrating Jesus' birth on the 25th is, has always been directly aligned to the birth of the sun, the, 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 the lengthening of the days. The sun has returned. The light has returned. Now, we know, if we know anything, that a lot of esoteric teachings and understanding always intermingles God whatever he may be, with the return of light and the sun. Sun worship, we talk about that a lot. The heliocentric model um, and all these ancient practices that were what? All sourced in the worship of the sun. We're going to look at Ezekiel a little bit later. He even talks about that. So again, this predates Christianity, but December 25th was, was the, the birth of sun gods. It was always aligned with that on purpose. Now that's 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 why. Well, we, we're gonna. I'm gonna try to be kind in this one. But December 25th in, in the winter solstice season was was always a, a widely um, celebrated pagan festival time of year in so many different cultures, in in in, in lands, and generation after generation would perpetuate this this cycle of celebrations around this time called different things called many things in different countries but but all sourced in, in the winter solstice and again which is not bad in and of itself but it is what it has been made into and what is ascribed to it where it becomes idolatrous in in its celebration and we're going to really expand on this principle in great measure um, over the next little bit here now, now, interestingly, if you look at secular culture, if you look at pagan culture, if you look at um, what would be called like white witchcraft, uh, Wicca, anything like that, na- people who, who worship nature and, and other religions have no issue with this. They, they, they know. <laughs> they don't argue the point that, well, yeah, Jesus' birth on December 25th is just a, a reincarnation of what's always been. So Christians can have that. They can add Jesus to the mix. That's fine. But Christians, however, for whatever reason, we're the most ignorant. We're the, the most negligent to talk about. No, it's about Jesus. All over the world. Oh, well, this nation. Keep Christ in Christmas, dang it. <laughs> I've talked about that in, in other episodes before. If you can take him out, there's probably a problem. But what about more modern times? Okay, we're going to move through history again. We're going to just we're not going to just drive home hours of pagan idolatry hidden within Christmas and all that kind of stuff. That's exhausted, exhausting to me anymore. But for all the patriotic fellows out there, what about how American Puritans actually banned the celebration of Christmas in the 1600s? Why? Well, they knew its idolatrous origins. They knew the taint that came with it. So Puritan pilgrims in the late 1600s literally, literally now, made it illegal in, in many areas such as Boston to even celebrate Christmas at all. 
you would be fined literal money if you were caught celebrating Christmas in America in the 1600s. And again, this nation is so young. Friends, we're not talking very long ago. So young. It wasn't for another 200-plus years around 1870 that Christmas would be declared a federal holiday here in America. What changed? Now, this is what became so intriguing to me because I didn't know all this stuff here that I'm about to present. Well, what changed? Why in the world did it suddenly become socially acceptable? And and like even from a governmental standpoint and, and from culture itself, Christian culture. Well, American culture itself was changing. And the church's caving to worldly pressures was front and center in this. Now, it wasn't until the 1900s that Americans began to fully embrace the idea of Christmas in this nation. took them a few years. Culture was demanding their freedom to observe what the church had openly opposed for many years. Okay, again, now the church, the Christian church opposed the holiday as a national holiday, as a nationally recognized festival They said, no, this is idolatrous. This is pagan practices. So what happened? Well, we have to take a peek into some goings-on of the day to really understand why, to better understand what, what happened or what was happening then. Well, this is a time of rioting, poverty, turmoil. The nation was not in a good place, infighting, Uh, A lot of people were just excessively poor. They couldn't get jobs. People were just, let's just simplify. They were just miserable people. It was a tough, trying time. But American culture created a solution, a Band-Aid, if you will, for the nation's woes. They would invent an American Christmas, a a reinvention of Christmas that already existed, in different forms, in different fashions, in different cultures and nations, old traditions. But they decided to invent an American Christmas holiday. More than just putting it on a calendar now. But I mean, like, what is it? What do we do? What does it look like? And they would grab handfuls of ancient traditions from all over the world in order to create this American Christmas. And they would tweak them to have American-laced anecdotes and meanings. Personalize it a little bit, if you will, which is what cultures always did. (laughs) Well, you have Mithra, we have Tammuz. Well, you have Tammuz, we have Jesus. All the same day, all the same recognition, and the same type of celebratory festivities. And that's the part that that is, is hopefully, if you're listening, is going to become... If you're a spiritual man, it will become very alarming to you about the similarities between these things. And this is fascinating. American pop culture of the day would give the people something worth finding joy in amidst all their troubles and trials and poverty. Something that provided what? Peace, hope, an American Christmas. And I'm very... I feel like one thing that I get is how in, in, the, in the era I live in, in this age, how pop culture and television, music, um, celebrity, all these things, how they, 
how they they are what they are what the elite use to to fashion a, a culture. They design a culture by constantly infiltrating what you see and what you hear and what you give your heart to. And next thing you know, now this takes years and years and years, but over the course of years, and it's a long-term agenda, they're in no hurry, it's quite successful, all of a sudden your, your subliminal submissions to the general populace begin to be accepted. And you cannot argue this point, Christian. The, the gay and lesbian agenda... I always like to throw back on the believers and say, look, do you see this is what you're doing? This is what has happened to the church. What you see from a million miles away, look what they're doing. There's there's uh, same-sex couples kissing on commercials now during our football games. I'm boycotting whatever product is selling what they are doing. That's Christian's response. We're going to boycott the NFL, or we're going to boycott, you know— is, Instead of, ah, oh, this is what all of culture, including Christian culture, is doing, which is sending out a message to, to infiltrate our thoughts, which literally changes the makeup of who we are and what we do and what we don't do. And so I found this in this study that I did of 100 years ago, roughly. American pop culture began to give people a little recipe, if you will, of a beautiful American Christmas to help get their mind off of the depravity of what America really had become and was becoming in greater measure. Sound familiar? So enter a Christmas carol and other cultural cultural phenomenons like Twas the Night Before Christmas. And America began by pop culture to create their own new holiday, grabbing from endless ancient customs, practices, and beliefs, all steeped in idolatry and pagan, pagan deities. But, oh, no, 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 it's not that. I know it sounds like that, and we're doing the exact same things, but this is different. This is an American Christmas, and baby Jesus is under the tree. The Santa Claus character was heavily introduced this way in around 1812 at the outset via several popular fictional stories by a man named Washington Irving. He depicted Santa flying in a wagon alongside European-inspired images of beautiful countryside Christmas festivities happening in the background that we still have in our imagination today. Now, now let me just say this, and I talked to a brother about this earlier today. And if we could all close our eyes and just sit down and turn on our imaginations. And I said, look, friend, I I want to invite you to imagine a beautiful, classic American Christmas. Now, now, if you're if you're 15, you might not be able to do that. But at my age, at 48, I can do that easily. And most people, of course, if you're older than I am, can do that with without issue. Would be no no hard thing. But we would see what? We would see a beautiful sleigh with a garland and gold bells, beautiful horses going through the snow with carolers in the background. Perhaps a lady has a bonnet on. You see a uh, a little beautiful house in the background, and there's snow on the roof, and there's candles in the windows, and the windows are a little bit frosty. We could go on and on and on, right? 
What is that? That is what has been delivered to us through Christian American pop culture. I say Christian really loosely. I don't even like making those associations, but that's the ugliness of it. American Christmas culture, friend, has been beautifully designed and packaged and oddly enough, not coincidentally, delivered to you as a gift to say, look at this. Look at this. Don't worry about this or this or this. And surely, Christian, listen to me. Don't worry about the Feast of Yahweh Elohim. That was for the Jews. Look what we have for you. And it has worked to perfection, friend. It's worked to perfection. I could spend an hour just explaining from my own imagination a beautiful, classic American Christmas. We all know it's true. But this author, just to give you a little idea of him, because these players are so important. This isn't just, oh, I just, that's just American Christmas nostalgia. No, friend. It has so much more than just entertainment. What about today? It's the same. It's the same. It's always been the same. Pop culture designed to deliver you something else to distract you from the real. And so this man, Washington Irving, delivered all these European-inspired images that we all know. He's the one who also wrote Rip Van Winkle, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He created the name Knickerbocker in New York. New York Knicks, the basketball team, still exists today. And why in the world do I say that? Because this is just a tiny example that we could do many, many, many layers of how these things are inserted into culture and become the norm, accepted. Culture becomes real life. (laughs) It's incredible how advertising, printing, and popular media has always moved American society into new ways of thinking and swayed entire generations and their standards to be altered and debased. Friend, do you hear what I'm saying? You may say, rightly so, it's fine. You may say, Joel, now you're out here, you've lost me. You've lost me. What do you even, what does this have to do with father's appointed times. What does this have to do with with anything? To me, it's easy, but I could understand why someone might present that to me. Friend, it means everything. It means everything. Because we see the pattern in the scripture, how everything subtly comes in, a, in an enticing manner to Yahweh's children. It comes to his people in a beautiful package of a of an enticing, cunning, beautiful presentation. We just talked about that in the wisdom study mere days ago. How Lady Folly, the, the prostitute that she is, has beautiful, enticing words that wants to hit you right in that sweet spot and draw you in. She is not a, 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 an angry, fanged woman hanging out in the shadows, beckoning you in, and you look at her and you're repulsed. No, friend, it's just like this. I know your life is horrible. I know things are awful. The, the, you're a celebratory people, which we'll talk about later. But those feasts and festivals were for the Jews. I know the Bible says they're the festivals of Yahweh Elohim, but those are not for you. But this is gifts, sleigh rides, Christmas carols, Christmas programs, nativity scenes, Santa Claus, candy canes, beautiful lights. You can have all of this. And baby Jesus, too. 
Friends, this is idolatry. This is how idolatry, idolatry comes to mankind. It is, it, was, it is delivered in a beautiful package, package that is enticing to the eye that you and I will want if we're not already committed covenantally to the Father's ways. And that's why this matters. What we see today is nothing more than an ongoing activity that has been around for decades, delivered to us deliberately with great precision in order to steer the populace to a general belief system of the beautiful American Christmas with baby Jesus at the foot of the tree. How about Christmas spirit? That's the result, right? Do you know what that is? You may not think you know, well, now you're talking craziness. That's just fantasy, Christmas spirit. Really? (laughs) I mentioned this in the Confronting Christmas, and then we'll wrap this part up. We'll move to part three. I mentioned this, I remember, in the Confronting Christmas series two years ago, which, again, was the last time I talked about this. I don't get some sort of satisfaction about bringing this topic up and offending people. But I, I, I described how my wife and I and our son, we went to, for whatever reason, we went to Bristol, Tennessee, which is one of the biggest met, metro. It's not even metro compared to what real metro is. But for us today, it's a more populated area. It has malls and all that stuff. Now, we don't go to the mall, but we went to an open mall area, you know, a, a huge parking lot with stores all around to shop for uh, some clothes for my son because he needed clothes, <laughs> We should have done that way before, but we didn't. Well, anyway, we go, and you can hear music piped over the speakers. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's the Salvation Army. Ding, 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 ding. Somebody drives by, maybe a wreath on their grill of their car, and a lady walks by you at the store, and she's got Christmas tree earrings and maybe a baby Jesus brooch. And I remember... I turned to my wife and I said, do you feel that? She said, what? At first, what? Do you feel what's in the air? It's Christmas spirit. It's the Christmas spirit, y'all. It's the spirit of Christmas and it is alive and it is well and it is consuming the Christian church. Has been for hundreds of years, but I would say incrementally so because now we're so divorced from Yahweh Elohim's feasts and festivals, they're not even a consideration for most. It has worked. And in this day and age, look around. You've heard this. You've heard it and you know it. COVID, the violence in the streets of America, um, vaccines, all these things. Oh, Oh, the world is so horrible. But at least we have Christmas. Buy this, buy that. Sale, sale, sale. Get this. Go here. Do this. Whew, let's at least have a few weeks of fun. When'd you put your Christmas tree up? The day after Halloween? I mean, Harvest Festival. We don't do Halloween. We do the Harvest Festival. We dress Timmy up as Moses instead of a demon because we love Jesus. Friend, do you see what I'm saying? We have made something idolatrous, something Christian by our own assignment and our own will. And as I started off talking about this, can we do that? Have we been given the license to do that? And do we see anywhere in the Bible of a scriptural pattern where we're allowed to do that? And we tell Yahweh Elohim what, what we will celebrate 
and how and put his name on it. And <laughs> we just assume he is agreeable with it and is somehow pleased. Friend, it's dangerous doctrine. It's dangerous thinking and dangerous living. And so we're going to wrap this part up here talking about that next. Let's see, what are we doing? I don't know. We're going to talk a little bit more about American Christmas history. Just briefly, a little bit more. And then we're going to move into some deeper stuff. And then we're going to get into the good part. We're not, I'm not going to leave you hanging now. Because as I have already referenced, we have been created to be a celebratory people, but we must be found doing what Yahweh himself told us brings pleasure to his heart. We must be infatuated with that more than what we come up with and present to him and say, hope you like it. <laughs> um, so this is Festivals of Men or Feast of the Lord, another biblical challenge to Christmas. Thank you for watching. This is the Path to Zion podcast where we are rediscovering the ancient way. If you have questions, which I know you do, reach out to us at pathdesignpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Debate the topic. Show me scriptures where, the, where Christmas is commanded in the scriptures from the Word of God. Show me where we're supposed to remember Yeshua's birth and set up camp there and make a, a, a celebration and a festival around it, and we can talk. But either way, Send me whatever you'd like there. I'll be glad to talk to you. I'm not here to argue. I'm here to help all of us, and you help me. And maybe we'll find the ancient way reality. So thank you for watching. Come back for part three right after this. Amen.